Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. You are here with your host, Auntie Vice, and we are back. We are taking a break from all of our legislative and policy series. I have such an honor to introduce Midori. I'm sure 95% of my listeners are already familiar with her work. She is amazing. She's a writer. She's an educator. She's a coach. She's an artist. She has produced probably the first and most seminal work on Shibari that's still out there. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, and hello, dear listeners. It's great to have you on the show. So I wanted to start the conversation around what you are probably most known for, is your work in Shibari. Mm -hmm. When you wrote your first book, The Seductive Art of Japanese Bondage, did you have any idea it would get the traction it's gotten over the last two decades? Uh, Oh, my God. No, not at all. Oh, by the way, can I swear on stuff on this show? Of course. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. We're we're explicit. Okay. So uh, no, not at all. And for folks who are just getting into kink or rope bondage or shibari today might not realize that the huge popularity that is today has not been so. Really, it's only been the last few years that's gotten really huge. Somewhere in like the late aughts, it started to catch interest of folks. I mean, for that matter, the destigmatization of kink in general, even discussions of safe word is very contemporary. So we uh, take a step back on the time machine and we get to the late 90s and shibari or Japanese rope bondage was so not commonly talked about that even in the kink and leather subcultures, I'd get asked shibari, what's that? And I would have to do a lot of explaining. So seriously, folks, it was not anywhere like this that it is today. It wasn't like that back then. There were a handful of us. I think we all like knew each other, various little pockets, Seattle, LA, Chicago, London. And I think in London, when I was doing a lot of performances in the late 90s, there were essentially three of us, just three of us, Murakami, Mistress Amrita and myself. And we were all coming from, well, Murakawa's from local. John was local, but there were just three of us, really not known. And there were definite enthusiast pockets, like tiny enthusiast pockets. But back then, also, kink was generally highly stigmatized and pathologized. So we had to be careful about who we were talking to. Me, Uh, My naivety and general overly optimistic foolishness meant that I was out yapping about it when 
uh, other therapists or educators were like, no, 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 don't talk about that, even if you're into it. And I'm like, what? Why? Naivety serving me well. And I was already teaching some classes, but mind you, I'm not the first in terms of teaching of this because uh, there was and still is Kay Buckley, who I learned and apprenticed a bit from. There was Lou Duff. And on the East Coast, there were uh, folks as well. Now, what's interesting is in the left coast here, in the 80s and 90s, the hot shit rope tops were women. It was, do you remember that? It was like, yeah, it, it's taken such a dramatic shift mm-hmm. in who does rope and how we conceptualize it. But yeah, no, the, the 90s kink scene in San Francisco was delightful and very female centered. Yeah. And when when you thought of heavy leather, it's the gay boys. Mm-hmm. When you think of blood play, it was the leather dykes. And when you think of rope bondage, it was women, queer and straight. And you wanted hot rope bondage of any style, it was women. And not in like the denigrative, it's women's crap, but like, oh, yeah, yeah, the women are awesome. That kind of way, right? So we can talk about a little more a little later, I guess. It takes like similar uh, trajectory as the professionalization of computer programming and then exclusion of women. Similar thing. My God. But uh, at that point in the footsteps of Lou and Kay and uh, uh, Sybil, not as much, but yeah, certainly the various other women in the area teaching, I started teaching and developing my own style. It also helps that I'm from Japan, so I'm reading source material and some cultural contextualizing combined with that unique 90s San Francisco sex positivity and humanism. Now, Janet Hardy was always good about noticing who was doing what and teaching what. She was, now retired and emeritus, was the owner and publisher of Greenery Press, where many wonderful books came out of. And she approached me and scouted me. At that point, I'd already been writing for the fantastic underground magazine Spectator, scouted me about, hey, do you want to write a class? If you can make a class and uh, you're articulate about it, it can turn into a book. Okay. And she was used to finding um, niche interests and knowing that it was a very small niche on any of these. And little did she figure that, say, like BDSM 101 would blow up, you know? And because it was niche and because there was no other English language instruction book, and we would get things from Japan and try to like translate it ourselves and and trade VCR tapes and then CDs, but v- seriously, VCR tapes, okay? Um, you can Google what a VCR tape is, y'all. Um, so we would swap that, right? And so she approached me about writing. Because you already already knew I could also write and string a couple of words together. It took me a while because I wanted to create something that spoke to the ordinary ordinary people. And putting in a heavy dose of that 
San Francisco sex positivity, which had not gone out to the world yet. Discourse of gender and consent was not an everyday mainstream topic. So how am I going to introduce that? And we wanted to get this into mainstream bookstores like Barnes and Nobles, not just a little corner comic store with a kink section. So there's that. Well, bondage is still, and kink is still stigmatized. I want to show people tied up. How do we do that without, and as a how-to book, that can get the books into the mainstream bookstores without being sued and showing basic technique with deep emotional and psychological connection, but also a little bit of cultural history. This had not been done. We were a little scared because it's one thing. And we also wanted to put in pictures. That was the thing that was scary because all the other books were words and words could get in under the radar. But the moment you put in pictures and these were conservative times and rise of the evangelical right. Tinky Winky was was like Satan spawn. Oh my God, that was so stupid. Um, how do we get this book out there? So walking a fine line, right? I also, very Bay Area, wanted to show all sorts of genders and body types. And I'm very proud that we did that. And uh, because it was a niche and I managed to talk her into making this more of a coffee table book, which she'd never done. She'd not put in color plates. And with the publishing industry back then, what it was, where most of the printing was done overseas, Hong Kong and the like, printing was expensive, took a long time. Color plates were way expensive. So managed to negotiate for six color plates, which today... I hear people who are newer to being human, actually, alive, say, uh, kind of going, why is there so few color plates? Because it was expensive. And a small publisher, I mean, a teensy-weensy, independent, hardworking publisher in a niche field that could at any moment get sued, like the Little Sisters bookstore got, to put out the money to make this color print to take a chance on this book that has had no proven track record. And she took a big risk, and I'm grateful. However, and she will tell you this now, that because she didn't think it would sell well, she gave me a very generous um, royalty agreement. <laughs> and to this oh, day, awesome. yeah, jokingly, she's like, had I known, had I known. <laughs> she published, uh, she printed... Again, not thinking it would be much of a, a niche or sale, and she expected to have plenty in the warehouse. She made the first run at 5,000 copies. Now, timing. The book came out in late September of 2001, shortly after the 9-11 attack. 9-11 attack was horrible. Then my first big deal book came out, like, 
I'm doomed. No one's ever going to know about it. The world is sad. The world is terrible. No one, and kink is already stigmatized anyway. This is going to go nowhere. <laughs> and then it sold out in the first month. First month, 5,000 copies. We were, Janet and I were both stunned. And since then, the printing has gone to like 8,000 and 10,000. And now, 23 years later, it is still continually in print. Uh, so that's a bit of the backstory. And it is a phenomenal book. I was in New York at the time and in the kink scene there and can remember like waiting for Strand to get copies of it. Oh my I God, really? It was, <laughs> yeah. it was so exciting because there was so little on the market. And I think for people who are newer to the scene, they don't understand how you only had you know, what we called paperback mentors. It wasn't like a huge internet to go explore all of this and getting into the clubs and the culture was very different. So to have something like that out was so exciting as a kinky and person. Mainstream, right? Not just a zine. Right. Like I could go to the strand with eight miles of books and get it. It was thrilling, right? Um yeah. to have this come out. And you talk about putting in some of the cultural context. So a lot of what I hear now is everybody equates rope and shibari as the same thing. What's what's the difference? Let's see. Layers of umbrellas. So there's sexy fun thing, big umbrella, and then you get what would be considered kink or not kink, and kink is just historically contextual. I mean, today's average is like 20 years ago. Oh, clutch my pearls, scandal, scandal, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's contextual to the time and place. Then under the kink stuff, you get all sorts of different umbrellas, and then you get like the umbrella of bondage. Now, bondage could be metal or leather uh, or vacuum bags, fabulous things. Um, and then there's rope. Rope can be all sorts of different styles. Uh, it can be, I mean, classic one that we tends to get overlooked is like the whole John Willie bondage or the damsel in distress, the lady tied to the train tracks. Oh no, I'll save you now. And we have amazing uh, American rope bondage tradition that relates both to the cowboy Western arts and comic books. I mean, this is Americana, right? So you got rope bondage in that sense. And then there's another genre that's very culturally specific that's Japanese bondage. But not all rope bondage is Japanese bondage. It's kind of like um, not all French cuisine is every cuisine. One of the things I know that you bring up, especially when people ask you to teach a class at their location is how are they going to address some of the cultural stuff around rope and the the cultural appropriation? So what have you seen and why is that now part of the requirement that they answer those questions when you go to teach a class for them? Uh, yes. Um, there's, if the listeners are familiar with the term Orientalism, and it's it's a form of racism that looks like a compliment. It's othering. And I want to thank the whole, all the civil rights movements going way back, but also specifically Black Lives Matter. 
as well as the anti-Asian hate. But Black Lives Matters has given the general public language to be more critical about how are we framing other people's life experience and culture. So there's a unfortunate tendency, uh, sometimes well-meaning and just don't know better, but sometimes coming from a place of, honestly, white and masculine supremacy of just being a cultural asshole, to be blunt about it, and wanting to elevate what I call this pleasure craft into something highfalutin and elevate unnecessarily elevated and not realistic and essentially dehumanizing about contemporary Japanese sexual culture as well as Japanese culture in general. So if an organization is inquiring about me teaching about Japanese bondage, I want to know if they're coming from a place of well-camouflaged racism or a place from genuine curiosity and wanting to learn. I won't fault people or organizations for having gotten the wrong information. But if it is that they want me to be a decoration and validation for their worldview, no. You bring up a couple of things I want to touch on. First is this idea that you have to be, it has to be incredibly ornate and difficult and professional to be okay. Is there any benefit in not debuting your skills until you are pristine at at your time? Oh, I do see that and I get that because you know I, I teach in groups as well as privately. So I will commonly get the, hey, my partner's interested in rope bondage. We saw it online. I want to surprise them with a hot rope scene, but not until I'm perfect. <sighs> Heavy sigh. You know, there's enough things in the world that we are told that we have to be perfect by media standards. Career, parenting, work, health, fitness, body shape, mental health, uh, yet another goddamn thing that we're supposed to be perfect at. Great. You know who this serves? It serves the gatekeepers and people who need to have their identity and ego propped up. Shibari is rope bondage is fun, and it's supposed to be, in private play, messy and delightful. And people are confusing the stage performances that are in Japan, strip the context from it, and then want to make that into how every Joe and Jane and Mr. and Mrs. Tanaka is playing. It's kind of like saying that, okay, so uh, in terms of I have to do this perfectly or it's not real Japanese rope bondage, is like saying watching Cirque du Soleil and thinking that is authentic Canadian sex. And not until I can do all that aerial movements do I get to have hot sex with a Canadian. I love that equation because it is so true and one of the things i've loved when i've taken your classes is you talk about bringing in the humor and the joy of it because a lot of people i think when they think especially about 
shibari and bondage. It's it's so serious and sensual. And why yeah. can't we have fun, right? So yeah. how, how do you bring in the fun to scenes, like, and break people out of that? This is so technical and focused. Yeah. Well, my my definition of BDSM, which many many of my folks familiar with my work know, is BDSM is childhood joyous play with adult privilege and cool toys. It's cops and robbers with fucking, where fucking's actually optional. And Simon says, or Simone says, is a DS game. Right? So that already shifts the thinking. And if we can look at that, actually, if any kink activity, if you step back enough, it is child's play. And I am, sometimes people worry that I'm I'm uh, putting down kink, but play is the root of human creativity. Sometimes I have people saying, don't sexualize my childhood. No, 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 no. I'm childing our adulthood. Yeah, we. God, there's so many things we need to take seriously and and intense about. Just turn on the news. That it doesn't have to be. And in moments of levity, there's this there's this contradiction of a play. That in levity and joy, we can we are more likely to touch that which is intense and deep by not trying to be deep. How did you come to that realization? Because that's not at all how we teach sexuality in adult relationships. That's that's not a model of, of the play and joy and fun. So what was it in your journey that got you to, to really understand the importance of that? Huh. You know, I've never been asked that. That's a good one. How in my journey? Well, sometimes people ask me about how did you come out into kink? But I've never had that experience because I just thought it was creative, creative, weird, uh, messing around with sex and being imaginative. And that People didn't talk about it only because they were being polite. This is where the Japanese-ness comes out. Um, mm-hmm. You're just like, you don't want to make other people uncomfortable. There's things that we do behind closed doors. It, I think it was in my early 30s that I realized that there were people of the more uh, North American, Judeo-Christian, white, um, kind of waspy thing that uh, compartmentalize kink as opposed to that thing that we do that I'm not about to tell my mother. So the play has always, I think, been there. I mean, even in my artwork, I'm a bit of a prankster. And in my artwork, I'll often present work that is initially feels like hee-hee, giggle, funny. And then you read it or look at it and go, oh, crap. Like I made a, speaking of Shibari and the intersection of art and Shibari, uh, years ago for the Seattle Erotic Art Festival, great event, by the way, I submitted and was accepted this artwork, interactive artwork. It's a sofa, 
It's a love seat made of blow-up dolls tied up. Entirely made of blow-up dolls. And initially it's funny, right? People sit on that, ha-ha, until they realize kind of the body horror of it and the political horror. Because all these tied up pretty things are replaceable. Mm -hmm. So has the, because you do quite a bit of artwork and you've been doing a ton of it lately. Yeah. Uh, has that always been part of, of your work or was that something you came into after you started teaching kink and, and working in other ways? Oh, it's actually opposite. Uh, I've been making, and uh, sometimes people think that I got into, a lot of times I'm making art using rope and secondary uh, repurposed rope and such. Oh, did you start making rope art because you teach bondage? Actually, I've always been interested in fibercraft and traditional, uh, what I would call subsistence craft. Uh, influenced my mother, who was a, um, a cultural researcher, specializing in Edo period literature uh, in Japan. So I spent a lot of time exposed to folk craft toys, things that were made out of straw and wood and fabric when all my other kids at school were playing with plastic and vinyl things. And the fiber arts and just, just craft. I, I just like craft. And this nostalgia to... My nostalgia to a bygone Japan is not that of the mythical samurai culture, but the townspeople, the regular townspeople, and the beauty of common kimono fabric, not like the embellished ones, but equivalent of calico, right? And so I have a soft spot for ordinary people's ways of creating and beauty. You got to wear clothes. Might as well be cute, but it's got to be cheap and easy to mend. It's quilting, much like that. So my interest has been in that. Uh, also, in Japanese primary schools, we are taught a lot about art and art skills. We make things. So when I started kinking uh, and I would see really expensive bondage items, and I remember studying that. Not only did I have like Japanese cinema tied up villain images in my head already, but I'd look at these expansive Mr. S leather restraints and like like uh, body cages and all that. And I'd see if I could make it with things I had and rope, uh, like making fishing nets, like all the ways in which ropes used in Japanese culture and not just for tying up prisoners by honorable warriors. Now, now it's the farmer bundling the bale of rice because that's hella tight. So it went from the cultural background, the love of craft, then being poor as a college student, I'm just now poor as an adult, and reverse engineering with that little lingering memory of cultural nostalgia. And I was like, oh yeah. I remember this thing from stuff I sort of saw in culture in Japan. Then I meet up with the likes of Wolf and Kay Buckley and and uh, like, oh, yeah, I remember this. So, yeah. And now, back in the day, I didn't think of myself as an artist because that just seemed like you had to be formally taught and trained. 
but turns out I've been making all along. Do you have a favorite art piece you've done? Well, that usually is whatever I've been making most recently. I did make a piece. Oh, my God. Let's. God, which one? It's like picking my favorite child. Okay, so a more recent piece is one called Placemat. Mm. And it was accepted for a show, a biennial, uh, by the Asian American Women Arts Association at SOMARTS. It is one-to-one hand-painted replica of a Chinese restaurant placemat with the zodiacs, except the words instead of the animal, like rat, and then the years, you know, 2000, whatever to whatever, you're born, and characters, instead of that, it's the year of the law. I put 12 discriminatory immigration laws and race-based laws in chronological order, starting with the Chinese Exclusionary Act. So the year of the law, name of the law, and underneath, I put out a social media call for other Asian diasporic people, especially femmes, on dumb racist shit people say to us. So I just put that in a spreadsheet, shook it up, and lined that up. And in the center of it is the definition of definition of Asian according to and what the U.S. Census operates by. Along with it is a pink gun, pink flocked gun. Homage to all those uh, exploitation films, but also it's Hello Kitty Pink. So you want to grab my pussy? Say hello to my kitty. And listeners, we will have a link to that image because you have it on your site and it's delightful. It is so well done. I, I absolutely love it. And the bullet, uh, there's these, I mean, pointed to my ears. You can't see it, listeners. <laughs> I have these five bullets, like five fingers. They're bullet casings where the bullet is actually hand-painted acrylic nails painted by my favorite Vietnamese immigrant nail artist. So layers and layers and layers. I've actually made jewelry out of it now where, you know, the, the swag exit through the gift shop. So little, it's like femme weaponry, these brass bullets with like pretty little patterns. Mm-hmm. Also probably good for playing because it's nice and pokey. They are, they are. So you bring up uh, the feminine and, and weapons. You also teach a lot around female dominance and coming into your dominant voice. And you are restarting a project. Do you want to talk about that for a little bit? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. Fort FM, Women's Dominance Weekend Intensive. I've been doing this since 2004. Initially, it was like once a year. But in right up until, well, March 2020, I was doing it every other month. New York, San Francisco, New York, San Francisco on three-day intensive, and I mean intensive, this is not a sit around and like uh, just, you know, pat ourselves on the back about being kinky. No, um, this will make some therapists cry. (laughs) Deep down work, limited to eight people, and uh, um, women, trans women, because trans women are women, and femme happy non-binary folks. Language is changing. I'm constantly working on that. And that I had a three-year 
pause because of COVID and being extra safe. But then during COVID, our two campuses, our two beautiful locations in New York, both New York and San Francisco went poof because buildings being sold and poof. But we found a beautiful location after much searching in the Oakland Hills, this gorgeous 1920s Spanish style private home, gorgeous view. And we're restarting it. So the first cohort group, Fort FM, is happening July 7th. And if you miss getting in, because it is limited, uh, don't worry. We are getting back into our back into the saddle and stepping into our high heels again to and heels optional to get back into it. So we're having a little slow start to give ourselves a little ease because it's like 26 hours of teaching for me. So I'm giving myself and my team a bit of ease and updating the content. And yeah, I'm really excited. So that's fortfm.com. But beyond that, that one is limited by how one identifies. But all my other classes around exploring dominance is for all peoples of all orientations and genders. So, for example, my class, The Art of Feminine Dominance, the the two-hour version is open to all. And, and for those who enjoy bottoming and submitting, I highly encourage them to attend as well so they can be a better partner. Yeah, I'm really excited. How did you come into your dominant voice? Because when you're assigned female at birth, this is not something we are taught. Yeah. And growing up in Japan. Right? Yeah. I'm definitely the inappropriate kind of Japanese girl. I'm loud. I take up space. This explains why I'm comfortable in New York. I landed whenever I get in New York. I was like, ah, comfortable. So, well, a lot of little factors. No one aha gestalt moment. My grandmother on my white side was a pioneer daughter and, uh, one of the daughters of daughter of people who actually came over on the Oregon Trail, not a game for real, came on the Oregon Trail. Farm woman, no nonsense, suffragette, and she was certainly an influence. And I remember growing up in Japan, it not sitting right with me that it just didn't feel right that I always had to be a little doll. Now that my family never expected that, but yeah. So there's little bits of seeds that get planted there. I am uh, actually quite introverted. I'm what I call a high-functioning introvert. I like small group, intimate conversations. In high school, junior high and high school, I was junior high, especially when I came over here, terribly shy. And I remember getting to my new American high school and pulling myself up by my big girl panties. And if I wanted friends, I had to go up and say hello. That was terrifying. 
And then people liked it. And that gave me a little confidence in finding other nerd kids. That helped. And being, and then eventually, uh, out of high school, I ended up joining the Army. And let me tell you, that will teach you command voice. And, uh, yeah, being in uniform, going through physically intense training, and realizing that I'm as strong as most of these guys. Okay, I'm short, whatever, I'm less of a target. Awesome. And you, so things have changed to you. You're finally coming back to teaching the the Fort Femme, but with the pandemic, so much of it went online. How did your work change in the last couple of years? Oh my goodness. In the beginning with the pandemic, I, many of my colleagues went to teaching online immediately. I'm often slow to things. So I, I also needed to, uh, I had to refund all my Fort FM students. I had to deal with that and the and the business aspect of it. But I decided not to jump on the online teaching. I wanted to figure out, I wanted to see other people step off the cliff and see if they'd splatter or fly. I'm also not necessarily a tech person, so I needed to figure out how to use a tool. Sure, I'd been using Zoom and Skype, but this is a little bit different. So I gave myself time. And that's when I got to focus a little more on my artwork and, and such. It was nice giving myself that time to reflect. And, oh, my Patreon, bless my Patreon, uh, patreon.com, Planet Midori. I've had Patreon many years before the pandemic. And it was it was a little place, and, and I was having fun with it. But I really... I guess I turned my back to general public social media and dove into my Patreon as a place to put my thoughts and ideas. And given that my subscribers are genuine supporters and would let me experiment, that's where I started experimenting with, could I do this? I did like a whip fit flogger-based exercise class online. I tried this, that, and the other, and they gave me the room to experiment and create new classes. I even got to host other people's workshopping the workshop. Uh, Dixie Delator, who of the body storytelling, she'd been live coaching in person, but she wanted to figure out how to do an online class. So I offered my Patreon as a place to workshop her workshop. And she created such a beautiful thing. And and for our listeners, I'll have a link to Body Storytelling because it's a wonderful show and Dixie is is a doll to work with. And you have a couple body storytelling episodes out, I know. Oh my god. Oh my god, yes. Yeah. The like the one where I ended up at uh tried to pass myself up as I'm just a tourist. I no, no, no. I'm just here at a rope bondage shibari gathering in japan where i was just trying to sneak in and observe uh yeah, <laughs> yeah no they're, they're they're fun episodes so we'll have links to those and and for listeners if you get a chance to see body it is it's a great night i've performed with them a bunch they're they're a fun show to do so good so we're we're coming up on time. So before we we go, there's a couple of questions I I still have. In you refer to yourself as Auntie Midori, and you offer office hours. 
what's the auntie? I'm an auntie. I know. Talk yeah. about your auntie persona. Okay. So uh, years ago, a friend of mine in Richmond, Virginia, we're like the same age, right? Well, he's a little bit, you know, he's a little bit younger. And funny, snarky, gay boy. And I was teaching in his town a bit. We made friends and he started just referring to me as auntie. And I'm like, I'm not that old. And he just kind of roll his eyes and keep calling me. I'm like, okay, whatever. And in many cultures, certainly in the Asian culture, auntie takes a special place. There's an authority, but then there's also, you can say things to your auntie that you want to your mommy can also be protector, but will also smack you upside the head when you're being a dumbass. Uh, there's the Fast and Furious that had uh, The Rock and Jason Statham going back to The Rock's home. And then, the, you know, the mom, the tiny Pacific Islander mom that takes those two boys and literally slaps them with a, a flip-flop. Yeah, that. So the, a few years back, I got the, I had the honor of judging for... International Mr. Leather. And I realized that by that point, several of the younger gay leather men were treating me. I used to be an older sister. Well, now when I started, I was a kid sister, you know, the awkward kid that's shown up on the playground. Then I ended up becoming sister. And then I became older sister. And I guess with gravitas and not being, not giving a shit about having an opinion and having fucked up enough to have an opinion. Um, so I find myself at International Mr. Leather in Chicago. I am judging. There's 50, 60 contestants. And some of them are outside of the uh, classic Leatherman imagery. Some of them were the earlier contestants that were showing gender fluidity. There was this one beautiful individual who came up on stage in leather and a and gorgeous leather skirt, handmade in a cape, and masculine and feminine mixed in a self-created outfit. And then people from the there were some people in the audience that booed them. That was not okay. So for these young men contestants who were really pushing this culture. I remember sitting in the interviews as well as in the judging station, like sending them loving eyes so they had somebody to look at. Mm -hmm. And around then, a lot of people started, and I think there were more people of color leathermen, whether it's the Latinx population also have aunties, um, started referring to me and I'm like, okay, I'll own it. Then add to that the middle age thing. I am not the ingenue that I was. I'm also not that stupid anymore, thank God. Um, you know, youth is wasted on the young. God. It really is. Yeah. And how do I, ageism, societal, ageism, internalized, how do I come to terms with that? But I've always admired the likes of the Catherine Hepburn and Lauren Bicall, even the Betty Davis. <laughs> and those were the Hollywood glamour aunties, right? And icons of 
queer sexuality. So I'm like, okay, fine. I'll own it. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been an honor to interview you. I, your work has inspired me for decades, and I, I deeply appreciate it. I had no idea. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, you like I, I follow this career you've had, and it's it's phenomenal. It's it's been such a model. So thank you for our listeners who want to find you, who want to enroll in classes, who want to do the intensive, who want to support your Patreon. Plug all the things. Okay, the easiest thing is planetmidori.com. All my social media is Planet Midori. You go to Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash Planet Midori. And if you want to find Fort FM, guess what? It's fortfm.com. But if you can't remember, just go to planetmidori.com. It will point you to my teaching, my Patreon, and my artwork. And for those of you who want to talk and discuss ideas with me, I have live Zoom office hours every other week in my Patreon. Great conversations, art, kink, life, movies. I like my Marvel movies, everything. So come on by. It's good conversation. We'll have all of those links and more in the show notes. Thank you for being on the show. Remember to like, subscribe, you know, do all the things, review us. It's helpful. Thank you so much. And now, a moment of gratitude. Oh, I am grateful for. I am grateful for the, the new generation. Questioning, institutional structures. I mean, you go at them, kids, because we there've been a bunch of us continuing to work on it, but man. There were times when it seemed like there was no future for progressive ideas and humanistic ideas. I, I'm just going to throw my hand up and give up, and then I turn around and, no, I don't have to give up because there's more. It's good. I like that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.